0: All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. If you would go ahead and turn to First Peter, First <laughs> Peter, chapter one. Now, for some of you who are visiting um, or haven't been here for a long time, um, we've been going through First Peter in Sunday school for uh, for for several months, and just working our way through verse by verse. Uh, concept by concept, just to appreciate what the Lord has for us in His Word in First Peter. And so we're shifting from Sunday school up to preaching now. I'm going to be preaching through First Peter for however long and um, during preaching. And so some of you I recognize that are here today and preaching aren't always in Sunday school. So I want to take just a minute to go over just a brief sketch of sort of where we've come from in First Peter to catch you up and then We'll start in on our main text, which is going to be around verse 22 and 23 today of chapter 1. Um, so before I do that, though, why don't I go ahead and I would like to just read the whole passage up till about where we'll be today, just so you get a feel and a flow of, of what Peter is really after and some of the content that he, that he brings out for us and um, to give some backdrop to the verses that we'll talk to this morning. So. I'm going to start reading in chapter 1, verse 1. And if you guys have Bibles, either literal, physical, tangible books, or if you have it on your phone, please follow along um, just so you can track with me through the text here. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls as to this salvation the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow and it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you In these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Let's pray. Father, what what glorious content, Um, and just what an amazing thing that you so moved in this man, Peter, a man gripped by the reality of Jesus Christ and the gospel, to write this letter to circulate in Asia 2,000 years ago so that we might have it for ourselves, that we might be stirred up in our minds to remember what we have in Christ to remember who we are in Christ and to remember what our responsibility is now that we are in Christ. And Lord, we ask you this morning, all of us here, we all stand underneath this book. We pray, Father, that you would please help us to do what it says, to think how it says we are to think and to live the way it says we ought to live for your glory and honor and our good and the good of your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so, 1 Peter chapter 1, we just read through it, about up to the verses that we'll be in today. And let me just kind of zero in a little bit more on conceptually what Peter is after through this first chapter. So, when you start at the beginning here, you're dealing with Peter. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's an authoritative spokesman for God. So when Peter is writing his letter, he's not writing it as any any sort of commoner, he's writing it as a sent man, a man that's commissioned by Jesus Christ for the sake of the church, for the sake of the well-being of the church, for the sake of the instruction of the church. And Peter writes with authority, the authority of Jesus Christ. And so everything we're reading this morning, everything we're going to be talking about this morning comes from heaven, right? So everything that, that we're going to hear about our responsibility comes from the risen King, the Lord Jesus. And, and, and this King Jesus sent these apostles out to, to, to instruct the church, to warn the church, to build up the church, and, um, and this letter, this first letter of Peter, is one of those evidences and one of those bits of instruction that we get from this sent, this sent man, this ambassador for Christ. Well, Peter is writing to those who reside as aliens. The word is exile. And that's one of the, the, the sort of the uh, the main things throughout Peter that he he really wants to encourage the saints with this reality that this world is not their home. These people are not exiles because they're waiting to go back to Jerusalem. These people aren't waiting for some sort of massing gathering back in Israel, waiting for temples to be restored, and all of these kinds of things. No. Peter says these people are exiles for several reasons, but it's none of those. One of those reasons is the fact that these people are exiles because of their election. Peter says it right here at the beginning. Who are chosen? That is a biblical word. It's in there. It's in the text that these people are exiles because they've been chosen of God. And they've been chosen of God by his own foreknowledge of them, his, his foreloving them, his, his knowing them beforehand before they were even born. He chooses them out of love and he brings them to himself. So they're exiles because they're elect, they're exiles because they have the Spirit. The Spirit has set them apart now to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So these people are exiles because they're elect, they're exiles because they have the Spirit and the Spirit has compelled them now to obey Jesus Christ and, 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 and the Spirit has applied the finished work of Christ. To us, so that now that we are in covenant with with, with Christ, and covenant with God, in this new covenant. That's all just in the first couple of verses. There's a whole heck of a lot that we could talk about from the first couple of verses of 1 Peter. But that's what Peter is, is doing. He's, he's writing to these people to remind them of who they are in Christ, that they're exiles, right? They're foreigners here, but they're not foreigners to God. They belong to God. And Peter's wanting them to know that because these people in that Peter is writing to in modern day Turkey, in Asia, we're, we're suffering some persecution, some amount of persecution. At this point, it seems like it's relatively soft. Um, but the reality is, persecution in all in all its phases, y- you need encouragement in it, whether it's slander or whether it's you know, whether it's you know being imprisoned or whatever it is. So Peter knows that. He he wants to be able to encourage these people with their identity in Christ. They are exiles. They are elect. They are indwelt by the spirit and so on. So after verses one and two, Peter goes into first three and following with sort of his own, you get a glimpse into Peter's own mind and heart and his praise to God for all of the amazing blessings we possess and enjoy from the father. Peter doesn't He starts in verse 3 with his own happiness, his own worship. Listen to what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has done this and done this and done this. So you get a glimpse into the fact that Peter, however old he is, older now, probably in his 60s, he is still thrilled at the reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ, of what God has done through his mercy to, to bring about new birth in these people. Peter is praising God. He's not first calling us to do anything or, 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 or even necessarily uh, you know, any sort of obligation. He's just here taking a second to just glory in what the Lord God has done. He's praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter sort of, he, he, takes, he takes a minute just to talk about all of these amazing things that we enjoy from our new birth all the way to our inheritance that will not fade away, that's reserved in heaven. Unless you think you won't obtain it, we're protected, verse 5, by the power of God through faith to bring about and to enjoy and to possess this final inheritance. And then Peter moves on to talk about the fact that we have purpose in trials, that that Christians can make sense of of why we're in trials, and what is God up to in trials? Well, it's there for our refining, right? It's there for our strengthening. And Peter talks about the fact that even though we haven't seen Jesus Christ, we love him. There's this, this, (laughs) it's sort of mysterious, isn't it, that that we've never seen the God-man Jesus Christ, and yet real Christians love this man. This is one of the fundamental things that, that is common for all believers everywhere, anywhere, is the fact that we love Jesus Christ. And Peter doesn't have to guess whether or not these people do. He just says, and you love him. Because he knows that's true of you. He knows that if you're a Christian, you're going to love Jesus Christ. And this, this love will will erupt in joy because of what we have in Christ and, and so on. And then he, he goes on in verse 10 through 12, talking about this amazing era that we now live in after the cross and resurrection, that we live in this era that the prophets foretold of. The Old Testament is a and, and, and the Old Covenant, the Old Testament is this era of revelation that was pointing forward to a time that would come, that Jesus himself would, would bring about and inaugurate in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God and, 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 and the consequent pouring out of the Spirit and the, and the promulgation of the gospel that will go to the nations. That's the era in which we live and the prophets foretold of that. He spells that out in verse 10 through 12. But then you get to verse 13 and you have a therefore. And this therefore exists because there's a shift in Peter's focus now. There's a shift in Peter's emphasis. And it's moving from what God has done to what now you are to do in light of what God has done, right? So he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action, prepare your minds for action. So Peter turns from the blessings of the gospel to our responsibility in light of the blessings of the gospel. And he begins with starting to sort of fix our hope on the second coming that will be maintained with our minds focused in the truth every day. Then he sort of continues on to talk about our behavior. In verse 14 and verse 15, that we are to be holy because the Lord our God is holy. He says this holiness is fostered and maintained by remembering the day of judgment, in which our judge is none other than our Father. That's what he says in verse 17. If you address his Father, the one who impartially judges, this is one of the ways that you, are, you can maintain. A sense of the importance of living a holy life because you will have to stand before God one day and this God is impartial and he's your father and therefore we must fear God because we will give account of ourselves before him on that awesome day however while we must fear God certainly we must not live our lives from a platform of uh, and a mental frame of doubt and uncertainty with regard to our redemption and acceptance before God. Peter says that we must know every day that we are owned by Christ, bought by Christ, who shed his blood for us. Verse, verse 18, that you, you live in fear knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, but with precious blood. So while we do are sober to that day, we don't go day by day wondering and worrying if we're right with God. We go through the day from a platform of acceptance, knowing that we're bought with his blood and his blood satisfies God's justice. And this work of Christ dying and rising from the dead, then, Peter says, forms the basis of our faith and hope. In other words, if God can raise his son in history, then we can live our lives knowing we'll be raised too one day in history. And that's what he says in verse 21. God raised Jesus from the dead, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. One One of the things that you take away from the resurrection of Jesus is your own resurrection. Did he rise from the dead, well, so will you in glory. And because that's the case, your faith and hope can be in God. And last week when we were in Sunday school, we started looking a little bit more at verse 22 and 23 and we're really just focused in on this idea of, of purification first, but let me, let, me, let me spell out a little bit as to the structure in verse 22 and 23. Again, Peter's still talking about now how we're to live in light of what God has done for us in Christ. Peter says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls unto a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So if you're to sort of parse this, these two verses out to understand in Peter's mind, how he's structuring it, here's how it would go. It's got one imperative and imperative is something, it's a command. It's something you must do. And the command here in 22 and 23 is fervently love one another from the heart. That's the command. Of Peter. He tells these believers in Asia that you are to love one another. That's the command. And it's supported by two participles. And these two participles are you have purified your souls and you have been born again. Now these participles are supporting participles. In other words, in other words, Peter commands the brethren to love one another not as a command to gain purification, but as an outworking and privilege of being purified by Christ. In other words, our behavior to love is made possible by what God has done for us through our purification and our new birth. So in other words, the question is, how are we supposed to love one another? Well, you can love one another because you've been made pure, you've been cleansed, and you've been born again. So that's sort of the structure of it. The command is to fervently love and it's supported by these two amazing realities. That we, we have been cleansed by Christ and we have been born again by the Word of God. Now, we looked at last week the glorious truth of the fact that our souls have been purified by Christ. We looked into Hebrews 9 and 10, and that passage is so amazingly glorious. And we looked at this rich background that purification has in the Old Testament of the sacrificial system. Um, don't, don't want to go back into that, but just that, that, whole, that whole system that dealt with the clean and the unclean. A person could be deemed unclean for various reasons, sin certainly top of the list, but also bodily discharge touching something dead leprosy other things and being unclean cut you off from fellowship with the people of God and and at times would put you out of the camp and priests too had to go through this sort of purification ritual having their clothes washed with water so that they could serve in the tabernacle and, and and God prescribed a means by which the one who was defiled was made clean by this purification ritual through sacrifice and washings. So they would have to literally wash their clothes before they were able to enter into temple service. We talked about that last week. And then we looked at sort of the antitype of that, the reality of that in Jesus in Hebrews 9 and 10 that spoke of Christ, the high priest, entering the holy place by his own blood and brought about eternal redemption. And the writer Hebrews goes on to say, inward cleansing of the conscience so that we can serve the living God. So the purification Christ gains for us, cleanses us sort of to the bottom of our souls, Peter says. You've purified your souls. And now we have freedom to serve and love God and others. Our conscience no longer riddled with guilt and shame. The blood of Christ has washed us clean. No other religion can do that because they're all man-made and they don't deal with the heart. Only Jesus Christ can cleanse you to your soul. And can cleanse you and wash you from guilt. But here's the thing. That's all, that's all true. When we look at the work of Christ, it's a glorious thing. But I want you to notice what Peter does here. Peter wants to emphasize a vital truth apart from which no one will be made pure. And that is our obedience to this truth. Our obedience to this truth. You see that there, right? In verse 22, everybody looking at it. Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Now you would think he would say, since the blood of Jesus has purified your soul, which is true, but he focuses on us and our obedience to the truth. It's very interesting. In other words, Peter is saying here that, that the work of Christ affects purification, but our obedience of repentance from sin and our, our, our obedience of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ gains us the fruit of that purification. See, under the old covenant, it wouldn't help you if you if you simply acknowledged the water in the laver and didn't take it yourself and wash yourself. You know, you think about Naaman the Syrian. Naaman the Syrian was a, was a commander. He had leprosy. And Elisha the prophet told him that in order to be pure, you had to go down to the Jordan, right, and dip seven times. He was mad about it at first, right? He didn't want to do it. He's like, what's the deal? You could just call on God and he can do it for you. And he says, no, you need, you need to go wash. And when he went and washed, well, he was made clean. There is an aspect of obedience, isn't there? If we're going to be made pure. Makes Calvinists uncomfortable, doesn't it? Makes people uncomfortable. We don't like to think about that. But the reality is, if you don't repent and believe, you will not be pure. (laughs) The reality is, if you personally do not obey Jesus Christ in the command that he sends out to all the world to believe the gospel, you will not be saved. You will not be forgiven. So there's this vital aspect. And Peter knows that if these people are in Christ, it's because they've obeyed the gospel. They've obeyed the truth. so I just want to point that out, since you have an obedience to the truth, now he doesn't firstly say you've obeyed the gospel, although I think that's implied. He says you've obeyed the truth, and I want to take a second to think about that, that idea, the reality that truth is not truth is not simply an end. I was having a talk with a guy last night at a cookout in our neighborhood, and he was a, um, a brother in the Lord and and but he was talking to me about how, he, how theology was his hobby. I don't understand that. And, and I, I, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't grasp that, because to me, I discuss things about God because I want to know Him, not because it's intellectually stimulating. Um, and I was just telling him that oftentimes what I've seen in reform circles in particular is they make the truth an end and not a means to a godly life. So truth is not something merely to believe and then that's it. And if you can articulate it, then therefore you're doing it. <laughs> truth is actually something to certainly know, but then to live out. Let me read a couple of verses for you in, in this regard. Titus 1:1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. The knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Now think about that. The truth is that which accords with godliness. In other words, truth is a main feature of godliness. So it's not like get rid of truth and be godly. Truth is that which brings about godliness or or fosters godliness. godliness which is fearing God imitating God involves the knowledge of the truth but this knowledge of the truth yields godly living not just godly knowledge Paul is very emphatic on the fact that you can determine whether or not someone is is in the truth whether or not they're walking in the truth it's very important First, John says it pretty plainly here. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Truth is something to practice and do, not merely something to know. And in John, truth here is the opposite of walking in darkness. Surely darkness here has the idea of walking in a manner devoid of the light of Christ and his commands. Someone who says they have fellowship with Christ, yet walks in sin and darkness, does not do the truth, no matter what you say. No matter what you whatever you claim about yourself, you don't walk in the truth. You don't practice the truth, and the truth John would say is not in you. Truth is something that you do and practice. Truth is something that you obey. What is truth in the end? Truth is really reality according to God's perspective, right? That's what it is. That's what it is. So we're living in light of what God has revealed. So let's think about this a little bit further here. What truth is Peter saying we've obeyed? Well, I've already said it. You know, we've obeyed the gospel. I mean, you get a, you get a clue just by the way Peter talks about it, you know. We've purified, our, we've purified our souls in obedience to the truth. So the truth is saying to us and to the world, purify your soul. <laughs> That's what it's saying. The truth is saying we are impure by nature. The truth is saying we are defiled and need cleansing. Therefore, the truth we are obeying is, is the means by which we are cleansed. The truth that God demands that everyone everywhere repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. The command of Jesus to Nicodemus and to everybody that you must be born again. See, none of these things that Jesus spells out or the church spells out in the, in the gospel are suggestions or opinions. These are Commands. These are truths that must be obeyed. The gospel is not merely news. It is news that must be embraced. So listen, Mark one, 14 and 15, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus comes to Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Go pray about repenting. No, he doesn't say that he says, repent. And believe the gospel. This is a command from Jesus Christ. In light of the of the gospel that he preaches, listen to Paul Romans one five and six. Paul says we have, uh, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Obedience of faith is the f- is, is 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 the fact that when Paul preaches. The object of faith in the gospel of Jesus, the Gentiles must believe and trust in Christ. They are obligated to hear his message and believe. Again, the gospel is not a suggestion. Listen to this, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. And to give relief to you who are afflicted to us and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The gospel must be obeyed. It's not something we simply know. It must be obeyed. 1 Peter 4.17 in our own book here, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will become the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There it is again. There it is again. So when we're thinking about our interactions with people and the truth that we're talking about, it's extremely important that you understand what you're laying out in front of them. You hold out to them the course of life and death. That's what you're doing. So it's not like you're, it's the complete opposite of being unreasonable, right? You, you are actually wanting these people to live. And if you're not coming to the point in your conversations with people at some level, at some point, pointing the finger at them and saying, if you don't obey the gospel, you perish. If you don't repent and believe you perish, then you are actually not preaching the whole gospel. Is that right? If you don't get to the point to where you you point out to them that you're the man, (laughs) that you're the one who must consider this gospel and respond in light of it, then, I mean, because everybody's happy to hear about it, right? Everybody's happy to hear about what Jesus did. Or at least a lot of people are. They're not averse to it. They're not going to hate you for it. But you begin to turn to them and you say, and you must repent in light of this reality, that God has sent his son and his son is the only means by which you will be made right with God. And if you don't repent and believe in Jesus, you will perish in your sin. Then you're actually, you're, you're short you're circuiting the gospel. People have to understand that they are responsible before God to be made pure. They're gonna be made clean they have to go wash in the Jordan. They have to, or they won't be made pure. That is the reality. Um, and this is, this is such a vital, this is such a vital, a vital point. Such a vital point. Now, so we've, we've looked at that from different angles. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls, Peter goes on to say, the inevitable fruit of having your soul purified is sincere love of the brethren. Do you see that? Since you have an obedience to the tr- truth, purified your souls for or unto a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So let's think about this for a second. The word here that Peter uses is ice, it's unto. Unto is sort of a bridge. In other words, it links a thought with a consequent thought. So you're made pure, and that purification that happens takes you over into this reality now that you can have sincere love of the brethren. That's what Peter's talking about. Unto a sincere love of the brethren. This is the result of obeying the truth of the gospel. It has the power now to produce fruit, the fruit of love. Our souls are purified to a certain end. And that end, I think I could probably rightly say that's an end, a goal, is the love of the brethren. It's the love of the brethren. You were made pure in large part so that you would love the people of God. That is the inevitable result of someone who's been born of God. How many people do you hear say, I can be a Christian, don't go to church. So many people see church as optional. So many people think, especially in the South, that committing themselves to a local body of believers is sort of bonus if it happens. Peter would say, if you're not fellowshipping on a committed level with the brethren, there's a question whether or not you've been pure at all. Because what happens is when your soul's been purified, you're delivered from hatred and now you're able to love. And this love is not something that It's something that actually moves. It's something that actually moves you to meet needs in others, to invest yourself in others. That's what love is. It's self-giving. And so, the inevitable result of being pure and cleansed by Christ is loving. So so if anyone goes down that road that, well, you know, I, I uh, I can know Christ and not not go to church. Hey, and I mean, the reality is there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of bad churches. I mean, that's, that's just the truth. There's a lot of dead churches. Um, there's a lot of churches I wouldn't want to commit to. <laughs> but the people of God are, are here. And at the end of the day, you can find them if you want them, right? It didn't take me long. Um, it does take some people long. They go through their own experiences. But at the end of the day, real Christians know that they cannot sacrifice brotherhood. They know that they must be with the brethren. They have this longing, this ache. Because why? Because they're a part of the family of God. This is your family. Christians have been delivered from the tyranny of hatred. Where we hated God and hated others. Now God has set us free to love. That's what happens. Listen to, listen to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, and 10. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. See, loving the brethren has now become instinctive in Christians. It's become instinctive, something that God himself teaches us. When we're born again, you will love the brethren. Paul says, I don't even need to write you a letter about that. (laughs) Because you know that that's the case. It's one of the traits without which you cannot claim to be a Christian. So it's unto the love of the brethren. But he says it's unto a sincere love of the brethren. This word is the word where we get the, the term for hypocrite. It's taken from the theater, the idea of acting, play acting. Sort of the opposite of hypocrisy is sincere. So Peter is saying that that you've been set free to love and this love is real. This love is not pretending. You're not faking it. It's real love, it's true love, it's a, it, it, it has affection. A love that truly enjoys the other's company. When we are with the brethren, we do not feel like fish out of water, rather we are home. I really want to put that on you. Think about that for yourself. Do you feel like a fish out of water when you're with the saints? Or is it when you're with the saints you feel relieved? You feel refreshed. You feel, I am home. I mean, all things being equal, I understand there are issues that come up. I'm just talking on balance. Do you feel at home? You feel like you can sort of let your hair down and be who you are, where you're not always on guard with the world. When I'm with the world and I'm surrounded by people in the world, I'm just, you know, you feel like you're squirming a little bit because you know that you're operating from two totally different mindsets. But God has given us hearts to to love one another sincerely. This love of the brethren here that Peter uses, this term, this phrase that he uses, is actually one word, Philadelphia, made up of the terms of philo, philo and adelphos. Phylos meaning dear friend, close friend, intimate friend. Adelphos having to do with brother. So what we're talking about is a true friendship in brotherhood. We're talking about brotherly love, fraternal love. Not romantic love, but family love. That's what we're talking about. Love of the family. If you're in Christ, you're a part of his family now. He's your brother. You're his brother or sister. Your brothers and sisters now aren't necessarily blood relatives anymore. They might be. You hope they are. But family in the Christian life is now taking on another dimension if you know Christ. See, he was talking about that last, last Sunday when he was saying that the body of Christ now, this is his family. This is what Jesus says. Remember when, remember when Jesus' mom and his brothers go to looking for him, and he's got all the others sitting at his feet who are listening to his word, and they say, hey, the, your mom and your brothers are out there looking for you. And Jesus had the audacity to say, who are my brothers and sisters? So not those who are sitting at my feet and those who do the will of God. You can imagine that might have been offensive to his family if he, they got wind of that, but Jesus is stating this truth to, to remind us of that reality that we are a part of the family of God. So much more could be said about this, but what an amazing reality that Jesus Christ genuinely is our brother. And we are brethren together. And he's made us this. The love of the brethren. So the idea that Peter is after is that we've cleansed our hearts from hatred to sincere love of brothers and sisters. We now have the power to not pretend. So this doesn't mean everybody in Christ is equally easy to love. Okay, that's not what this is. Okay. But it does mean that we have the capacity to love supernaturally. We do. We do. I remember a guy that, um, this was years ago, and he knew his Bible so well. Could quote you any manner of Puritans, at, just at will. He could see all the relationships of Christ and, and, and the types and the shadows and the realities and always be talking about it, always be talking about it, always be talking about it. And he annoyed me to no end. And at the end of the day, it was because I was jealous. It was because I was jealous. I didn't really want to be around him, but it was because I was jealous. I always felt slighted. I always felt like, you know, it was, it was a reality check. It was, it was the wisdom of God to put him right there with me, but I didn't recognize it at the time. And, and I started to reflect. I started, what's, what's my issue? And I, and I, and it dawned on me that I was jealous. And That was just so freeing because I was able to repent from that. And I asked the Lord to give me a love for this man. And guess what? He did. And then I could be around him and and it was fine. And why? Because the Lord restored this reality that Chris, you're Chris, you're, you're mine. And he's who he is. And you guys are different. And I love you both. And don't get caught up in measuring yourself by other men. And so the Lord gave me love and he gave me freedom now to love this brother. Now that is supernatural. That happened in a matter of like 10 seconds once I recognized my sin. Now, the world doesn't have any resources like that. They just gossip and complain and are bitter against each other and put on plastic faces when they're around each other. Deep down, they hate each other, right? Not so in the Christian life. We have a resource in heaven, God our Father, who by his Spirit works in us to break the chains of hatred and jealousy and bitterness and those kinds of things. That's what he does, and he loves that. So if you have issues with your brethren in here, just understand you've got power from God to overcome that. You know, it's interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where you have people suing each other for various reasons. They've they've taken their conflicts to the court. And now this unbelieving magistrate is is arbitrating for these, these believers and Paul won't have it. And one of the things he tells them is he's like, look, you know, you're going to judge angels. You're going to judge the world. You should be able to work this stuff out. You have the spiritual competency to be, be able to work these things through. But even if you can't, shouldn't you just be defrauded even? Just, why don't you just take it on the chin? Why? Because that's, that's what you do if you're in Christ. You, 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 for the sake of unity, for the sake of love, for the sake of peace. Sometimes you have to just be defrauded and move on. The love of the brethren. God sets us free to love one another. These people have become our brothers and sisters in Christ. And now to the command. He he just flat commands us now to fervently love one another from the heart. So we've been set free to love. Therefore, love. That's what he says. Love one another. What's God's will for your life? Love your brethren fervently. Love the brethren God has placed you with fervently. This is a command. It's an imperative. We're commanded to fervently love one another from the heart. Now this this word fervently packs in the meaning of longevity, intensity, intentionality. It's a word used when Jesus was praying fervently in the garden, sweating drops of blood. He's praying fervently. What a picture. It's also used of the early church praying fervently when Peter was in jail and they were seeking God for his deliverance and seeking God that he would be sustained while in jail. So the reality is that this love, this, this love that we're to have is sincere, but it's to be intense, intentional, long term. It's sort of the opposite of cold indifference. If you feel your heart getting cold and indifferent toward your brethren, then you need to get before God and ask him to fan that flame. It's interesting that Paul in his letters and Peter actually at the end of his letter, I'll just read what Peter says. Verse 14, when this letter is circulated in Turkey and it lands in a church, he ends with, when you're done with his letter, greet one another with a kiss of love. What's going on there? Well, it's a reminder. That gesture, that act, whatever it is, and whatever culture expression that comes, it's a sort of breaking of whatever is cold and frozen and whatever. It it breaks that. It brings back the warmth. It brings back the heat. When you give somebody a hug, it's hard to stay mad at them, and it's because we're family. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Do we do that? Oh, maybe we don't kiss each other. But do you hug each other? Do you show affection to each other? That's how deep it goes. So, So fervent love speaks to our commitment levels and our affections for the brethren. And in particular, those of us at NCCF, this is obviously what, I mean, we're going to apply this to ourselves. We're going to hopefully take stock in what Peter is saying here. Am I, is, is my love fervent for the brethren here? Fervent love is not the person who doesn't really care whether or not they're with the brethren, right? Fervent love, that's not the person who's indifferent as to whether or not they're here. Um, and there are some in the history of our church who drift away because they don't have fervent love. Something else has sort of become their interest. Well, that's not fervent love. Fervent love is, is not present when, the, when, when, when someone leaves a church over some personality difference or petty offense. There's no fervent love there. And Peter actually spells this out in chapter four. He says, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Many leave churches over the smallest offense and never seek to work things through, let alone an actual sin done. Some people, a lot of people just leave because of you looked at me wrong or you said something wrong or Peter says, okay, well, I mean, you should be overcoming sins in your midst. Sins, things that people actually do to you that sin. You know, a lot of people look at what makes a successful church, what makes a healthy church, and this, this text about fervent love is a bellwether. It is the mark. Are the people sticking together, loving one another as a family? Are they doing that? Working through their issues, covering sin, being fervent in their love. This is a non-negotiable for us. This is what we cannot afford to lose at all costs. So when you get together in your prayer groups and you're thinking, what should we pray for? At least pray for this every time that we will have love for one another. A lot of churches backbite, hypersensitive. They don't even know how to work things through. We hope that Steve and I hope, and we genuinely hope that we've helped to some degree, help you all understand the importance of conflict resolution in love and in the gospel. To approach each other and not have to always come to us to work out your issues. The mark of a healthy church is a church that can do that well. I mean, it really is. Mark of a ch- healthy church is not someone who is not a pastor who is some superstar preacher. It's a church that actually loves one another, can work through their issues well. Because every church has the sin that needs to be covered. It's whether or not you have the fervent love that will actually cover it. So that, that's the thing we cannot afford to lose, brethren. And we can. We can. We can lose it. We can lose it by nursing bitterness. We can lose it by expectations not being met and then interpreting that as some slight on you. There's all kinds of different ways you can lose it. If you find yourself embittered or avoiding other brethren, then... Your love is growing cold. You avoid people. Every relationship must be right. You think about the Lord Jesus and how emphatic he was. If you've got something against your brother, you drop that sacrifice and you go make it right. You know, he prayed for unity. Well, to what degree should we be unified? Well, to the same degree that him and the Father are one, he says that we might be one. That's, I mean, that's a unity that's far more than just being in the same building, right? That's a unity of mind and heart and spirit and purpose. Fervent love is the love that positively seeks out brethren. Let that sink in. Fervent love is love that seeks out brethren. If they're not around, you go find them. If you're worried about them, you talk to them. That's fervent love. Fervent love is active. It's not just just a warm fuzzy in your heart. It's active. It seeks out others for their good. Loving fervently is intentionally seeking to build up the brethren. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, let all things be done for edification. All things, (laughs) all things be done. Paul says in Romans 12, 9 through 13, let love be without hypocrisy. Same thing Peter's after here. Because hypocrisy can still seep in and you got to put it to death. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. All of these things you can do. And all of these things you must do. But all of these things you can do. Opening your home, contributing to a need of the brethren. All of these things we can do. This, this This is who the church of Jesus Christ is. When visitors come into our midst... They should see that we are a world of love. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is. any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the spirit, if there's any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not looking out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Paul's great example of how to love is the Lord Jesus Talk about preferring the interests of others. <laughs> I mean, it almost seems like an understatement when you have the Son of God Himself coming to take on the wrath of God that was due to us, that we might be exalted to the right hand of God with Christ. I mean, how, do you, how much more love? I mean, you can't say anything else. And yet, that's our example. So don't talk to me about people offending you and you not being able to get over it. You need to take a strong look at the preexistence, the humiliation... Of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Master. Overcome. Put yourself to death and love your brethren. One of the, one of the outworkings of us loving one another is that the, the world sees that that Christ is real, Christ is true, the gospel's true, the gospel's powerful. But when you have a church that is divided and biting and bitter, then they assign hypocrisy to that place and to those people. Let it not be true here. Peter says, fervently love one another. One another. Each individual believer. The church. Each individual believer. Nobody left out. The church takes priority in your love. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 3.12. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we also do for you. Love one another first, all second. Galatians 6.10, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Matthew 25, all of the clothing and the food that you supply and the imprisonment visitations are are done to the least of these, my brethren. No one is left out. You know, there was a guy named John Zenz. He wrote a book called Building Up the Body, One Man or One Another. And I haven't read it, but I really like the title. Because what he's getting at is this reality that the local church of Jesus Christ is not built upon the pastor or pastors. It's built and held together because of brethren loving one another. Um... From the, from the people that are very public, like me and others, to the ones who are more in the shadows, each person is, to, is supposed to look out for one another. And Paul would even isolate those more in the shadows as needing more attention. Remember that, don't you? 1 Corinthians 12. On the contrary, Paul says, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members much be, our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care. Underline that, same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Do you care how your brethren are doing? Do you care? Do you care if they're forgotten? We must make sure there are no divisions in the body of those who are cared for and those who aren't. And what's the picture and standard of love we have in the New Testament? Well, it's Clearly John 13, right? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, Jesus says, even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The example of the depth and selflessness and nature of this love is Jesus Christ. God becomes man and humbles himself to wash their nasty feet. As an example of the links to which we should care for our brethren. First John says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. When you think about the extended nature and the recipients of our love, look at the cross. Christ pours out his entire lifeblood. He did this for the eternal good of his people, and he did it while we were enemies. So our love must imitate this pattern. A love shaped by the cross. And then, and then just finishing up with this thought, from the heart. Peter says it's from the heart. I mean, fervent, sincere from the heart. All of these things. Christianity is heart work, isn't it? It's heart work. But that's exactly where God works. That's exactly what God is in the business of doing. He's in the business of working on us from the from within, working on us from the bottom. Peter says your love must be from the heart. Our lives are lived from our hearts. You know, the Proverbs say, out of our out of our heart flow the issues of life. Therefore, protect those things. And the bad news is we come into this world dark and callous and deceptive in our hearts and evil in our hearts and inclined to love ourselves and not others. But God, as he's promised in the Old Testament in the new covenant, when someone's born again, he takes out our stony, stubborn heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh that's sensitive and can be shaped by the word and love of God. That we can truly love like Christ. Christ. So, God is not interested in hypocrites. He's not interested in actors, pretenders. He's interested in people who take it seriously that they know they ought to love one another like the Lord Jesus. And who know that when they're failing in this, that they can go to him, the great physician, and he will fix that. But you got to go to him, right? It's one thing to know it, it's another thing to go wash. Right? The writer of Hebrews says entering into the holy place through the blood of Jesus and having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, right? He says all that. You can go to the holy place and get washed again over and over. God can change your hearts. He can wash you clean again, and he can set you free to love again. So why don't we just pray to this end? Let's pray that the Lord give us fervent love for one another. And, um, and if you're struggling with this today and God's pinpointed it for you, hopefully it's been a freeing thing that you now know what's going on. And then just put it to death. Go talk to the brother or sister that you're having trouble with and move on. And, um, and be united. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing word. And Lord, I just pray that the brethren would love one another from the heart. Lord, that I would love these brethren, these precious brethren from the heart. Um, Lord, ever keep us a place of love. um, That the world might know that you're the Savior of men. In Jesus' name, amen. Do I need to announce anything? Yeah, go ahead, Jen. (laughs) I'm <laughs> eat